All right. Welcome, everyone. I hope uh, we didn't uh, put anyone to sleep there. We were trying a different hold music. Uh, homage to the piano behind our presenter today. I'm Will Fenton, Director of Research and Public Programs at the Library Company of Philadelphia. As you probably heard me say before, the Library Company was founded by Benjamin Franklin back in the early 18th century, but today we are an independent research library with specializations in all things early Americana, book history, print culture, visual culture, uh, women's history, African-American history, and uh, business and political economy. And this series, Fireside Chats, is sustained almost entirely by the generosity uh, and sense of duty of our former fellows. I kicked this off last April and we're still going. And I didn't anticipate, I didn't anticipate this being a weekly series, but thanks to your generosity, we've kept it going. And um, I, for one, am very grateful for that. Uh, Michael Haddam received his PhD in history from Yale University. He's taught at Knox College and Lang College at the, new, at the New School, and he's currently the Associate Director of the Yale New Haven Teachers Institute. Dr. Haddam is a producer and contributor to the JuntoCast, the first podcast on early American history, as well as History Talks, a new YouTube channel delivering content created by historians. That's important. He's been awarded fellowships from the American Philosophical Society, the New York Historical Society, the Massachusetts Historical Society, Mount Vernon, and other institutions. And his work and his writing have been featured in the New York Times and the Washington Post. Perhaps most importantly, Dr. Haddam was a library company McNeil Fellow in 2016-2017. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Will. Thank you. And so I want to begin by thanking Will and everyone else at the library company. Um, especially Jim Green and Connie King. My time there really was uh, fantastically productive. And that's thanks really to the library company's amazing collections and its equally amazing staff. So it's sort of a long held commonplace that Americans have traditionally been less interested in their past than in their present and their future. And one of the ways that we often see this supposed disinterest is in the somewhat annual, uh, I should say somewhat depressing annual reports that show that an overwhelming majority of Americans think that knowing our history is important, but at the same time, they also show how little Americans actually know about that history. Uh, a number of historians have actually argued that this disregard for the past um, was a product of the revolutionary era and of Americans sort of liberating themselves from the past through the revolution. But my book, Past and Prologue, uncovers an unprecedented explosion of historical cultural production in the revolutionary era that went well beyond just typical historical works or uh, histories of. And so to try to understand how Americans at the time thought about and understood the past, I went looking for any and all representations and uses of the past. So that means in political writings, but also in cultural productions like poetry, fiction, uh, children's textbooks and almanacs and things like that. And what I found was that the historical past really pervaded the politics and culture of the revolutionary era in ways that I think historians are yet to fully recognize or reckon with. And so the central question behind the book as a whole has to do with 
national identity and the American Revolution, right? So that is, how did colonists go from thinking of themselves as British subjects to thinking of themselves as American citizens? Now, before 1760, uh, most British colonists thought of the British past as their history. But by 1800, that's really no longer the case. And that's a really significant transformation, right? How does a society go about discarding a previously shared past and create a new one to replace it? And how do they do that amidst the upheaval and instability of revolution? And so my book tells the story of this transformation um, through three processes. Basically, how colonists began to reconsider their relationship to the British past, how they created a newly shared colonial past uh, for the first time, and also how after the war they created a deep national past or a sort of a sense of American antiquity. And I'll talk a little bit about that later. But fundamentally, my book argues that these changing historical memories are really necessary to better understand both the coming of the American Revolution and the origins of American national identity. So I'm gonna begin by saying a little bit about the book's origins. Um, it began as my dissertation in graduate school and was originally intended to explore British historical memory in the colonies up to 1776. But while I was doing research in the John Jay papers uh, at the New York Historical Society, uh, I found a manuscript, I'm gonna show it to you here, and you can see this is the cover page of what was a 500 plus page manuscript. And you can see that it reads history of the American Revolution. And there's a little, there's a notation on the last line that says found among the papers of Governor William Livingston, who had been the revolutionary governor of New York, of New Jersey. Uh, and I'd worked on Livingston and I knew that he hadn't written a history of the revolution. So I, effectively uh, started trying to figure out just what this was. And it was about 550 manuscript pages. And after I started transcribing it and analyzed the text and the handwriting, I discovered that it was an early draft manuscript of the first six chapters of David Ramsey's History of the American Revolution. And this is one of the most popular historical works of the early national period. And so after I identified it, I was able to compare this early draft, uh, which was uh, uh, written and, and sent around in uh, 1785 with the final published version that came out about five years later in 1790. And the biggest change that I saw was really in the first chapter, which in the draft spent a lot of time recounting the history of Britain in the 17th century. But in the published version, that was largely cut out and replaced with uh, sort of individual histories of the various colonies settlement and development. And so it was finding that manuscript and the changes in it that really convinced me to enlarge the scope of my project to include the early national period and to focus on the broader uh, process that was exemplified by these changes in the manuscript and, and especially the question that it raised, which was uh, when and how did Americans stop thinking of the British past uh, as their own and create a quote unquote American history uh, to replace it. And that's really the question at the, at the heart of the book. And so 
Uh, I'm going to start by talking about a few key facts regarding uh, what I call history culture uh, in the 18th century. And the first of those has to do with historical distance, right? And this is basically a term that it's, it's supposed to it's supposed to um, uh, uh, be, a, be a sort of sense of how far something in the past seems from, from the present moment, right? Uh, and you know, colonial history culture before the revolution was defined, at least in part, by the fact that historical distance in the 18th century was quite truncated. So even the sort of distant past retained an immediacy and a, and a sort of contemporary resonance. And while the, the colonies were undergoing quite uh, rapid economic and social changes, for the vast majority of colonists uh, who were engaged in rural uh, agriculture, and this is 98% of the population, um, the basic rhythms of their daily lives were really not all that different from those of their ancestors of hundreds of years past, uh, which is to say that uh, to them, the past really did not seem as far away as we might assume. I mean, we live in this contemporary society and, uh, and sort of technological and other developments have really sort of inflated our sense of historical distance. Um, but that's really not the case uh, for the in the 18th century. And for many people uh, in the 18th century, this sort of shortened sense of historical distance really contributed to a more intimate relationship between the past and the present. And what we might think of as a, as a more sort of intensely historicized present. Um, another key fact to understand about history culture in the 18th century is uh, Americans sort of cultural reverence for the authority of the past. And this is partly because they lived in a common law culture, right? That gave great weight to uh, custom, precedent, tradition. And in such a culture, there's a tendency to bestow le legitimacy on something because it had existed for a significant period of time. And this reverence for the authority of the past uh, manifested itself in, in sort of two key ways for understanding history culture's role in both the imperial crisis, uh, so the 1760s and 1770s, and in the early national period. So first, it applied directly to colonists' relationship with Britain, which they understood as having been legally defined by the sort of laissez-faire custom of the previous half century or more. But more broadly, it offered colonists before the revolution a sense of security and stability because it allowed them to develop expectations about the present uh, and the near future based on the past, right? The custom and precedent of the colony's relationship uh, with Britain allowed them to feel secure in their expectations that that relationship would not just suddenly change. Of course, when Parliament began to undertake their sort of program of imperial reforms in the 1760s, that relationship did suddenly change. And Parliament was seen as usurping uh, the authority of the past through its unprecedented legislation, like the Stamp Act and the Townsend Acts and the Tea Act. And this really caused colonists no small amount of anxiety and instability because they could no longer anticipate what would happen next. Um, John Adams expressed this anxiety and the sort of logic behind it when he asked incredulously during the Stamp Act crisis, 
are we not to prophesy the future by the experience of the past? So for many Americans today, I think, you know, we need only look back to the last four years to understand the anxiety that unprecedented behavior by the government and or its leaders can cause amongst individuals and communities. And uh, Parliament's behavior in the 1760s had another sort of uh, cultural impact on many colonists. And that was that they began to think about the British past differently. So the glorious revolution of 1688, which ended the, the sort of tyranny of the Stuart monarchs of the 17th century and established the constitutional monarchy um, by significantly expanding the powers of parliament at the expense of the king, uh, you know, the, the, the creation of, um, of other aspects of, of, or I should say, other aspects that come out of the Glorious Revolution of 1688, like say the creation of the Board of Trade and the national debt and the expansion of the Navy, all of these things combined to give a sense to Britons and colonists in the 18th century that the Glorious Revolution had really laid the foundation for the British Empire's uh, 18th century success. And so for that reason, it played a really fundamental role in most Britain's civic identity, uh, in, again, in Britain and in the colonies. Uh, and in that sense, it's really not unlike how many Americans have long related to the American Revolution, right? Seeing the, the principles that it established as the foundation on which the nation was built and, and from which it should always proceed. But when Parliament began to pass all kinds of unprecedented legislation, and colonists had realized that they had no one else to appeal to, um, they started to see the Glorious Revolution differently. And their experiences in the 1760s and 1770s really called into question the meaning of an event that had been fundamental to their identity as subjects of the most successful and free empire in the world. And they came to see the Glorious Revolution not as uh, having achieved, you know, uh, uh, some ideal balance between king and parliament, but instead as having simply reversed their roles by creating the circumstances in which a parliament could act as arbitrarily and tyrannically as any 17th century monarch. And so uh, this development in the 1760s actually also has some contemporary resonance um, in that many Americans today are broadly reconsidering the meaning of the American Revolution and the usefulness of its legacy in our political culture. So another uh, key aspect of the authority of the past in 18th century history culture was the importance of uh, what, what they called first principles. Um, this is a, an, a, an idea that colonists had inherited from 17th century uh, British culture. Uh, and, and What's going on there is that they had a very cyclical understanding of history. And that is that they understood that societies inevitably rose and fell according in part to their virtue. And so how can a society temporarily stave off its inevitable decline by returning to its first principles, right? And this is an idea that still retains a significant political power in the United States today. If we think about legal originalism or or even uh, the, the um, movements like the Tea Party. Um, so for colonists like Britons, this idea of first principles had meant the English constitution and the ideals of the glorious revolution. 
But during the imperial crisis and then later after the war, uh, you know, Parliament's actions really called those principles into question and colonists began to look for new first principles in their own colonial past. And, and that's really the, 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 top, the, the, the subjects that's covered in, in the first half of the book, especially in the second and third chapter. And then uh, finally, one other thing that we need to understand is that before the revolution, there's really, uh, there's no sense of a shared American past uh, before the revolution. No sense of a, of a, you know, sort of a colonial history that would incorporate all of the colonies. And I think, you know, many historians have sort of long assumed that the idea of American history came about after the revolution. My book actually argues that it was a driving force behind the revolution. Uh, beginning during the imperial crisis of the 1760s and 1770s. Um, and so the first half of the book really shows how, because of the crisis, American colonists began reconsidering their relationship to the British past because of Parliament's actions. Um, and they also began to construct a sense of a shared colonial past for the first time. But it isn't really until after the war that a coherent narrative begins to take shape and and so I want to uh, spend my, the rest of my time talking a little bit about that narrative and some of its themes and say something about, about uh, who was included and or who, who was not included and why. Uh, and so in thinking about the, the forging of a national history, the, the creation of a national history in the period after the Revolutionary War uh, and, the, and the role of the colonial past in that national history, it's really important to keep in mind that Unlike you know, most European nations, the United States was in a somewhat unique situation that was later followed uh, by many post-colonial South American nations of having had their historical origins in the form of their colonial past documented, right? Rather than sort of lost to the vast expanse of time. And that really provided a unique challenge, um, which was how do you incorporate a dependent colonial past into the national history of an independent republic. And so in the early national period, there, there are these cultural nationalist writers, and I talk about them a lot in the book, and, and that some of them are names that are, will be um, easily recognizable to people who um, uh, uh, are connected to the library company, like Benjamin Rush um, and people like that. And then there are some who are, who are a bit more obscure, but these cultural nationalist writers of all genres um, really contributed to the, the broad projects of fostering national identity uh, after, the, after the war and of establishing cultural independence from Britain, right? And the creation of a new national history was a real fundamental part of those projects. Um, this new national history would begin with the American or colonial past rather than the British past. Um, and that is the broader change that we saw uh, manifested in that uh, Ramsey manuscript that I uh, mentioned earlier. And so uh, nationalist writers and artists and others um, did this by basically reimagining a sort of shared colonial past and, and basically argued that the colonies had always been effectively independent uh, from Britain and that they'd always been united. And if you look at the cover, uh, the, the cover of the book, if you look at the shield, you can see that the two words on the shield are union and independence. 
and this is an image from the very early 19th century. But you can see, you know, these are really core themes in uh, the 1780s and 1790s as the, as the new nation is trying to find its way. And so uh, not only were the colonies characterized as having been independent from Britain and united, um, in his History of the Revolution, David Ramsey also basically turns the, the first settlers of New England into proper uh, 18th century patriots. So there's a famous quote from his history where he says that the political creed of an American colonist was short but substantial. He believed that God made, man, uh, made all mankind originally equal and that he endowed them with the rights of life, property, and as much liberty as was consistent with the rights of others. And that impressed with sentiments of this kind, they grew up from their earliest infancy uh, with a, a prepossession in favor of independence. And so what Ramsey's doing here is, is basically turning these first settlers uh, into proto-signers of the Declaration of Independence and asserting this kind of historical independence from Britain uh, was a key way in which cultural nationalists tried to foster a sense of uh, cultural independence from Britain after the war, right? The idea there is uh, we were never really under British authority. We never really had any affection for Britain and we were always united together. Now, none of these things are really historically accurate from our vantage point, for, uh, certainly. Um, but for someone at the time, uh, you know, taking those things together, it was really meant to imply to them that Americans had in fact never really been British, right? And we can see this uh, in, in some sense in David, in a, in a, a map, which I'm gonna show you here, um, uh, this is David Ramsey's uh, map, historical and biographical chart, which he made in 1810 uh, with the idea of sort of uh, selling them to schools. And I'm going to show you the inset here, the chart in the top right corner. Uh, it's color coded. Not all of them were color coded. Um, he had his daughters color them, some of them, and then sold them for a higher price. Um, but what you can see here is that if you, you can see that many of the colonies enjoyed what uh, Ramsey calls free government up until 1688, uh, 1689, right? The time of the Glorious Revolution, at which point they lost their independence. And this goes back to Americans rethinking of the Glorious Revolution during the 1760s and 1770s and coming to see it as allowing parliament to exercise arbitrary power over the colonies uh, and creating the situation that led to the declaring of independence. Uh, we can see that manifested here in Ramsey's chart. Uh, and so if, if we think about it more deeply, uh, there's a narrative to this chart, right? Uh, and so the story that Ramsey's map is telling is that um, the revolution was uh, about regaining something that had been lost, not about creating something entirely new, right? It's a very conservative interpretation of the revolution. And um, we can get a sense here of how these interpretations of the colonial past were also interrelated with the politics of the period. Uh, for example, uh, cultural nationalists used their historical cultural productions, which might be any, any kind of cultural production that you know, uses historical themes or content, um, how they use those and to, um, to promote these interpretations 
and, and we can get a sense of how those interpretations um, uh, effectively buttressed the authority of the new and tenuous federal government in the 1780s and then after the Constitutional Convention uh, in the 1790s. Uh, incidents like Shays Rebellion, where the participants adopted revolutionary rhetoric, really highlighted the need to these cultural nationalists um, to make the past less co-optable by the discontented, right? And so this historical memory of the colonial past that we can see in Ramsey's chart and in many works from the period uh, really tried to achieve that goal uh, primarily by uh, stressing continuities between the past and the present, right? Um, and, and by doing that, they effectively minimized the sense of historical change that was wrought by the revolution for their audience. Um, these historical works and historical cultural productions argued that the revolution was fought to preserve colonists' independence, right? So the revolution then appears to have been the product of, um, of deep systemic long-term issues sort of that had been sort of baked into the imperial cake, uh, you might say, rather than a sudden or spontaneous reaction, right? Like these protests occurring in the 1780s and 1790s. And so by creating a narrative in which the colonial past um, looked like the 1780s and 1790s, these writers made it so that independence represented continuity rather than rupture. And this new colonial past effectively de-radicalized the revolution at a time when these cultural nationalists were really trying to help rein in the popular spirit that had been unleashed by the revolution. Uh, especially in the years before and just after um, the Constitution. So part of establishing cultural independence from Britain uh, meant creating a national history that at least in some ways could transcend the history of Britain and the British Empire. And this is, I talk about in the book, how this is how Columbus becomes the discoverer of America, uh, thanks to the efforts of a number of these cultural nationalists who sort of took advantage of the 300th anniversary in 1792 to, to to make him that. And that's because he provided a non-British origin story for the new national history, right? Even though he never set foot on the North American continent. Um, another way that they sought to create a history that transcended the history of Britain or England was through a growing interest in uh, the natural history of the land itself. And so famously in the 1760s, the Comte de Buffon, who a, a, was a famous French scientist, had described both the landscape of North America and its animal inhabitants as degenerated and uh, uh, sort of in comparison, I should say, to, to Europe. And the land and the climate of North America, he argued, uh, produced smaller and weaker animals. And so subsequent European writers somewhat logically extended that argument to include um, the uh, human inhabitants. Of, the, of North America. So at first Native Americans, and then later by extension, American colonists. And uh, American intellectuals in the 1780s and 1790s really sought desperately to refute this degeneracy theory. Um, many state histories devoted long uh, sections, and in some cases, entire volumes to describing the land and its, uh, and its produce often referring to these European writers by name when they did so. And this impulse is actually what gave rise to the nation's uh, first natural history museums, 
I'm going to show you an, an image. This is Charles Wilson Peel. Um, this is a, the artist in his museum. This is what the, the name of the painting. And uh, Peel established the first, um, the first uh, really first na natural history museum, Peel uh, Museum in Philadelphia in the 1780s. Um, he was a painter who had made a living painting elites. Um, but had become interested in natural history and his interests really collided in the museum to serve nationalist purposes. Um, see in this other famous painting of the uh, museum of what was called its long room uh, by his son, uh, Rembrandt Peel, you can see specimens of species that are indigenous to North America um, lining the wall in these cases. Um, and that's to be expected in a natural history museum. But along the top of the walls were hung large portraits that Peel had painted of prominent figures from the War for Independence. And most historians have assumed that the display was inspired by the sort of um, taxonomy of the Enlightenment. So the idea was that man was on top uh, of the animals because that's where he stood in the natural world. But if we look again and understand Peel's museum as part of the broader history culture of the early Republic, you know, we can also see that, that what, he, what he also did was to create for his visitors a visual manifestation of the connection between um, the natural history of the continent and the history of the new nation. So uh, in the museum's catalog, uh, Peel wrote, of the, what he called the tendency that a knowledge of natural history has to promote national happiness. And so for visitors to the museum, the prominent placement of these uh, revolutionary portraits and busts uh, within the museum really provided an immediate and meaningful visual connection between the revolutionary past, which established the nation and its deep past. Uh, in other words, it's natural history, right? Um, a few years later, he would find uh, what all the cultural nationalists had been looking for, which was an animal bigger than any in Europe. And, uh, you know, because this would irrefutably refute once and for all the degeneracy theory. And so parts of a mastodon or a mammoth, as they called it, um, were found in upstate New York um, in the early 19th century. And, and Peel bought the rights to the site from John Maston, who owned the land. He offered him $200 uh, or the right to the bones that had been found and, and to, uh, to continue digging. And uh, Peel did that and eventually uncovered almost entire skeleton, uh, which went on display in his museum uh, in Philadelphia. And you can see it a little bit here um, uh, behind Peel. It, was, it became the main attraction at the museum. And it was really a huge sensation in both the United States and Europe. Um, and this interest in the land also extended to an interest in its indigenous inhabitants. Um, one French natural history writer noted in 1804 that many Americans make it their favorite business to combat European writers, and they act as if they were the advocates and avengers of their predecessors, the Indians, unquote. Um, many of these cultural nationalist writers, especially those writing you know, historical works, um, made analogies between uh, contact era Native Americans and the Americans of the 1780s and 1790s, sort of like they did in that 
uh, with the Puritans in that, in that Ramsey quote. Um, so when the historian of Vermont, Samuel Williams, wrote of the tendency and effect of a certain government being equality, freedom, and independence, he was actually speaking of uh, indigenous governments. And in a talk given at the New York Historical Society in 1804, Gouverneur Morris said that, uh, he said, We've, we grow out of the same ground with our Indian predecessors. Have we not some traits to mark our common origin? And this idea of, uh, or this practice of linking history and geography to sort of nationalize the land, because this is what's happening here. These, these uh, cultural nationalists are trying to uh, nationalize the natural history of the land. Um, uh, this idea really formed the foundation for a perspective on American history that was voiced by Daniel Webster in 1825, when he said that the principles of free government adheres to the American soil, right? So, so just as these nationalists were projecting their present onto their own colonial past, they also projected their present onto the past of indigenous peoples. And they, in this, in this period, they sort of constructed their own history for Native Americans um, that because, because it proved useful in their cultural project of fostering a new national identity. And of course, this is at the same time that efforts had already begun by the federal government and the states to displace Native Americans from their indigenous lands. So much as the new United States fought a uh, anti-colonial rebellion only to begin forging its own empire across the rest of the continent, these cultural nationalists adopted sort of common colonial cultural practices in trying to navigate their post-colonial circumstances. And just as the state and federal governments um, uh, did the same in, this, in the realm of uh, uh, politics and policy. And so their histories and the stories that they told about themselves were just as contradictory or paradoxical uh, as their rhetoric and, and actions in the present, right? And um, as, a, as a nation that has inherited their conception, their original creation uh, which of American history, we've also inherited those complex paradoxes. Um, and it's one of the reasons why it's, it, you know, there's a significance um, to our present that, that comes from these uh, choices that were made by the revolutionary generation um, when they created, literally created what um, many Americans have thought of ever since as quote unquote American history. And so I'm gonna conclude really briefly by just saying a few things about um, what I hope readers will get out of the book. And so one of the things is that, um, you know, for a long time, we've had uh, many different types of arguments or interpretations of the coming of the American Revolution, whether it's an economic interpretation or constitutional interpretation. Um, but in, in the book, I've really tried to offer one possible aspect of what might be considered the cultural origins and causes of the revolution. Um, and I've tried to recover some part of the complex role of the past in our nation's founding. And I really hope that that sheds light on its role in our current society. Um, you know, I show in the book that when Americans found themselves with a new nation, whose history only went back a few years to 1776, um, they created a shared past for themselves pretty much out of scratch. And that is what we call American history still to this day. Um, many Americans continue to think about American history on the foundation and the terms that were set by the revolutionary generation. 
And so I also hope that readers will come away from the book with a better appreciation of how history shapes the present and vice versa, specifically how that worked during the revolution. Uh, and I hope that they'll come away equipped to be more uh, aware of when specific narratives of the past are being used and to ask why and for whom. And so when a reader hears people complaining that history is being politicized by some person or group, they should know that American history has always been uh, political in the United States. Um, it can't not be political because that's not a bug. It's a feature of American history. Uh, and so uh, finally, I hope that readers will come away understanding that quote unquote American history is not a neutral objective term, but instead represents something that was originally constructed and that revising how we think about the past and our own history um, it really is an American tradition that played a crucial role in the founding of the nation. And so I'd like to say thank you to the library company for hosting this talk and to everyone watching, and I'm more than happy to answer any questions. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Michael. That was an um, uh, incredibly rich and timely talk. Um, I'd like to sit in this moment for a for just a, a second to kick us off. It seems that the story you're telling is one of uh, sort of removal, even disavowal of this English um, past and replacement with a sort of shared American identity. How is it that we've sort of come full circle and now we have an Anglo-Saxon caucus in the GOP? Yeah, I mean, it's, <clears throat> I talk in a little bit in the book about, you know, the, the, the place of the sort of Anglo-Saxon myth um, in the way that people, some people in the 18th century thought about English history, um, uh, maybe Thomas Jefferson most famously. Um, but you're right. I mean, that's basically, yeah, what I, one of the things that I find interesting about sort of coming full circle is that this, uh, a lot of the efforts and ideas that went into creating this first uh, national history or, or national historical narrative was about um, was about creating a sense of historical distance from Britain. Mm -hmm. um, and now, but here we are, you know, over two hundred years later, um, you know, the, uh, we have sort of, you know, academics are are still trying to get outside of the boundaries, the geographical boundaries, the temporal boundaries that were set by this, this revolutionary generation of historians. And one of them, the, you know, one of the main critiques of, of those boundaries is, th is that they're so Anglo-centric, right? Um, when the people who created them thought that what they were doing was getting away from that, right? So there's a, there's a cyclical aspect there uh, when I talk about how colonists in the 18th century thought about history cyclically, you know, uh, as opposed to um, thinking about it in a sort of linear progressive manner, which is sort of a late 18th century uh, idea, sort of late enlightenment idea. Um, it might at first seem very unintuitive, you know, um, but when you see moments like this where things sort of cycle around, you know what I mean? You, mm -hmm. To uh, to think, oh well, you know, maybe they had some some reason for for thinking that. <laughs> a question here from Michael Winship, who asks, and this is a question that I actually share: How did this manuscript, that is Ramsey's draft, that 1775 manuscript that you showed us at the beginning, 
How did that end up in the John Jay papers? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so it, so Ramsey, I, I later found out from doing research in Ramsey's papers in Philadelphia that uh, he had sent out uh, copies, a few copies of the first uh, six chapters of his history of the revolution to what he called, quote unquote, Eastern gentlemen, uh, looking for feedback. And I talk in the book, in chapter four in the book about how there was this sort of um, uh, informal historical network of these cultural nationalists, uh, especially historical writers who would you know, send their work to one another looking for feedback, sort of like an 18th century writers group you know, or, or, or working group. Um, but so that's what he did. He, he sent, a, he sent a, a few of these copies around. And of course, you know, this is 500, over 500 manuscript pages that he you know, obviously had to write out by hand. Um, the one that I, the, the one that I found, I don't know if it was, you know, like the, the sixth time that he was writing all this because it was, it was very tough to read the writing, you yeah. know, but uh, so he sent them around to get some feedback. And uh, I, I think that what happened is that he sent a copy to uh, William Livingston because Livingston had helped him published the, the book, his first book, which was a history of the revolution of South Carolina, uh, which he published earlier in the 1780s. And so uh, John Jay, of course, was William Livingston's son-in-law. And so when Livingston died in 1790, um, his papers, most of his papers went to John Jay. And then that's how they had makes its way into um, the Jay papers at the New York Historical Society. And when I found it, it was just identified by the title page, like William Livingston's History of the, the American Revolution. And like I said, I knew that he hadn't written that. And so, um, uh, so I was able to identify this unidentified uh, manuscript. Uh, one of the funny stories that goes along with that is that he sent one of the, these copies of the manuscript to Charles Thompson, who was the secretary hmm. of Continental Congress. And uh, Thompson responded, by um, offering some corrections to, to Ramsey's uh, chapters and also sharing like, um, uh, like a, story of, a story of his own from what was going on in Philadelphia, right? In the, in the buildup to independence. And Ramsey copied the story from Thompson's letter wholesale, like, like the 18th century equivalent of copying and pasting <laughs> to his uh, manuscript. And many years later, about 20 years later, when he was, um, uh, I think he was working on a revised edition, he had to write to Charles Thompson to ask him for more specifics about the story that he had put into his manuscript, you know, <laughs> as if he was telling the story. But of course, you know, I talk about this in the book, plagiarism was not really a thing in the 18th century, and, and almost all of these historians, you know, did this kind of uh, copying and pasting. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating to me to see um, that this is that this sort of predates the war. This process of removal and replacement that these um, these these cultural nationalists are undergoing. I mean, this is 1775, so this work starts early. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's you know, that's the, that's really, I think, one of the for, for for historians at least, that's one of the the interventions. I think you know, uh, up until. Uh, throughout the 19th century, well into the 20th century, 
uh, most people thought that an American national identity had developed over the course of the colonial period, right? Mm -hmm. And that, that was what uh, made independence possible, right, by 1776. In the last few decades, historians have come to um, sort of accept the idea that there was no sense of uh, shared national identity at the time of independence, and that it was really something that developed, you know, in the early republic, in the, mm -hmm. in the after the war. Um, so I'm, in some sense, you know, sort of splitting the difference between those two extreme positions to say this this begins before independence. It's 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 um it's abstract and it's a little ambiguous, but it's there, right? So the, the seeds of what develops after the war, you know, are already planted during, and and they're planted, you know, in because of the politics of the crisis. Yeah, exactly. So we have a couple of questions that sort of yeah. rotate around Ramsey a little bit. So I'm going to try to pull them together. Uh, first, Mark Bunjal writes, um, some of the cultural national, the, the cultural nationalists that you discuss also wrote state histories. For example, Ramsey on South Carolina or Belknap on New Hampshire. Did these state histories reinforce the new nationalist story that you argue emerged after the revolution? Yeah, yeah. So they, they absolutely do. I mean, it's it's interesting because I mean, uh, the, I mean, the amount, the, the number of historians who have worked on, you know, the writing of, of history in the period, it's, it's rather is rather small and uh, sort of bunched around the bicentennial uh, for, I guess, for obvious reason. Mm -hmm. it, you know, the idea there was um, uh, this um, uh, one historian, at least, uh, who, who argued that the existence of the state histories showed that, you know, localism was still predominant, right? Mm -hmm. But you only have to really look at the introductions or the prefaces of many of those state histories to see that that they understood themselves as contributing, you know, their state's part to a new national historical narrative, right? Um, not just, I mean, we see that in in many of these uh, at the beginning of many of these state uh, state histories, but also, you know, lots of essays written in magazines and newspapers. Um, by by these writers and by others, um, other sort of cultural nationalists who who understood that that was the role of these state histories, right? It would be much it's much easier to create a national history if you have all of these individual state histories that are already written, that can you know be uh, in twentieth century terms or twenty first century terms plagiarized, but you know, yeah. uh, so they they the the existence of state histories. Is not, you know, does not preclude or or is not evidence, um, you know, for the lack of a uh, sentiment toward, uh, you know, a national identity. It really was a an important constituent part of it. Yeah. Excellent. We have another question related to Ramsey from a fellow that might have overlapped with you, Nicole Dressler, um, who writes, uh, "Thank you so much for this wonderful talk. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the chart." from David Ramsey that you had showed. How typical or atypical was such an image? And you mentioned that his daughters colored them. And yeah. uh, so do we know what roles they might've played in his work? Yeah, so, I mean, I talk a little bit in the first chapter of the book about the sort of the, the origins of historical charts and um, 
Joseph Priestley produces some of the first, you know, real, uh, uh, I should say popular historical charts in England in the 1750s, um, biographical charts and uh, what, he, what he called the, uh, the new chart of history. And there, uh, uh, Ramsey is effectively drawing on both in this, uh, in his map, I'll, I'll put it back up here. Um, so uh, this was, Ramsey created this map in 1810. And the idea was that he would sell it to schools um, and uh, you could get a, an uncolored or a colored version and the colored version cost more. And again, his daughters, I found from his correspondence that his daughters created these, uh, did the coloring on these maps. Um, I've, I got this copy, saw this copy at the American Philosophical Society. And it's huge. It, it like took up a whole huge table, right? Mm. Um, it's not small. And uh, the only other copy that I've seen uh, was at the New York Public Library, and they had an uncolored version of it. Um, and his idea, you know, was that uh, not just that the the map would would be sold to schools, but there was also an accompanying pamphlet that came with it. Um, that sort of uh, um, that 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 gave more detail about you know the various um, uh, uh, points of time in the things that are signaled in the the historical chart and there's also beneath that a biographical chart um, with basically with men's names you know um, where so he would include these sort of short biographies of some of the most prominent of them. Uh, this is not this is not common. I mean, like the number of examples of these types of historical charts from say you know prior to 1820 is quite small hmm. so it, it was not something that was very common certainly ones of this size were not common and in the end it's not it it doesn't seem uh doesn't seem that ramsey sold a whole ton of these uh, and not many have uh are still extant so you know it's doesn't appear to have been a very profitable exercise for him, but if you if you read the book, you'll you'll see that it that doing any kind of historical cultural production like this in in these years was not profitable for most of them. Yeah, and uh, on the topic of profitability, I would encourage all of you to explore the chat feature where I dropped a link where you can purchase this book from Yale University Press. Uh, we definitely want to support our university presses and we want to support our wonderful authors. I've got a question here from uh, Dee Plunkett who writes, even in the 18th century, the European residents of North America were a diverse group speaking different languages. How did this, this linguistic diversity, influence the development of an American history? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I would, I would say first, um, you know, I think, is the case that you know there's a there's a and there's a great amount relatively speaking of ethnic diversity right in the colonies on the eve of the revolution um but you know what i what i found was if, if you know if we look at you know various ethnic groups um you know from you know various uh what we would think of as german sort of principalities or or even you know uh uh, French Huguenots, various groups from outside of England that came to the colonies. Um, many of them retained their ethnic identities, right? 
Um, but that did not preclude them from also adopting British civic identity, right? So you could still be ethnically a, uh, you know, a, a, a French Huguenot and yet have developed this, uh, this British civic identity. Like I talked about, you know, in the beginning of the talk, that's sort of based on the idea of, of the importance of the Glorious Revolution, right? Having created this, um, this empire that was the most free empire in the world, the most commercial empire in the world, uh, and, and really take that to heart. And that could live side by side by these, uh, by the, uh, these, these various ethnic groups. So it, didn't it certainly did not preclude um, uh, you know, their, their participation in, a, in an understanding of the importance of the British past to where a place where they were living, right? Um, and then I, I, the same would go for after the revolution for the, for the American past. Um, I did find some, uh, well, what we would think of as foreign language uh, histories, early histories of the United States from around the turn of the 19th century or just after, um, including one in German. Uh, you know, but those were, um, the circulation of those were, was relatively small, right? Um, but, their, but their existence says something, right? Um, that, that it says that whether it's before the revolution and we're talking about the British past or after and we talk about the American past, um, that you know, it was clear even to these uh, you know foreign groups um, that um, that a, developing a sense of the past was an important part of you know their own civic identity. Mm -hmm. I'm going to try to open the aperture here, and if I can, I'm going to try to squeeze two questions in here. Uh, Jelaine Bauer writes: Are there other countries that is former colonies? that went through a similar construction of their own history? I mean, so there are others that, that experienced similar dynamics, right? And I sort of mentioned this um, earlier in the talk, which is about you know, post-colonial South American nations um, had to face many of the same questions. Their, their earliest generations of historians had to face many of the same questions that were faced by the American historians in the 1780s and 1790s. And that, that has to do with, you know, uh, what do we do with this colonial past, right? Um, uh, there, are, there are, you know, instances in the, in the literature on, on some of these South American countries where, um, you know, uh, the colonial past just did not get included in, in, in early national histories. Like that's, um, you know, that there's a, that independence meant a sort of year one right, the, the beginning of a year one, and that they, they felt that they could not reconcile, you know, their colonial past with the, their, uh, with their independent present, right, or, or the, the project, their, their independent projected future. Um, the, but the Americans, you know, for various reasons, and part of it, I think, I, I hope that it comes through in the book, is that you know, history culture was so embedded in colonial society, um, you know, that, that, that wasn't, it was never really, I don't think, an option, you know, for, for Americans, former colonists, you know, to, to suddenly, you know, uh, throw, the, throw the past off, even though that's how historians have thought about them for a long time, you know, this idea that 
the revolution liberated Americans from the past. It liberated them from, you know, the maybe from the old world, you might say, right? Or the history of the old world. But, you know, uh, they replace that. They replace that with their own deep national past. They replace that with their own colonial histories and, and arguing, you know, for a much longer, uh, a much longer sort of span of independence than, you know, than, than, uh, than you would typically think. So uh, history was very important in the colonies, uh, in, in colonial culture. And that's why it's sort of, you know, that, that's one of the reasons why it carries over after the revolution and, and, and provides a sort of different result than we, uh, than we saw in some South American countries later on. That's great. Um, and a really nice synthetic place for us to uh, wind this conversation down. I'm sorry to all of those who I didn't get uh, to your questions. They're all wonderful as always, uh, but thank you all for your time on this Thursday evening. A gale is kicking up here in Philadelphia, so I know it's about time to adjourn. Um, and thank you in particular, Michael Haddam, for sharing your wonderful book with us. Thank you. Have a great night, everyone.